uh, to the uh, mic here, and I invite you to find your way over to the microphone over there. Uh, give your name as you start. Be brief, and let's give them some really tough questions. Thanks very much, uh, Trevor. It's John Nightingale. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions concerning the human rights record or so-called human rights in China. And I want to use two examples. One is the so-called liberation of Tibet and the consequences of the um, Chinese involvement in Tibet. And secondly, um, just recently, the blind dissident from China is now being granted um, asylum, I understand, in the U.S., as a result of that, his extended family in China is being harassed, and in some instances, they are also being imprisoned. So I would like your um, opinions on the human rights situation, and also whether you feel that with us cozying up now for economic reasons to China, whether the federal government of Canada can in fact influence them in any way to... Uh, um, try and negate the, what I consider anyway an appalling human rights record in China. Thank you. Okay, well that was about eight questions. And I noticed the moderator didn't moderate. <laughs> but let's hit human rights first. Uh, you know, we, we all have different value systems. And some of us try to impose our own value systems on different cultures, which irritates quite a lot of people far and wide. Now, we're talking about China, so we'll concentrate on China. But it's a common gripe amongst third world governments why don't these people let us get on and do our own thing and mind their own business? So, human rights in China, uh, like in other countries, evolved. It's evolving. Human rights is talked about around kitchen tables, but it's, it's in accordance with the Chinese value system. Now, you may say, well, what about the universal human rights? And I worked for the UN, so universal human rights is important. But I think I will leave it by saying generally that as China has joined the rest of the world, it is mindful not just of improving human rights in its own country for Chinese, but also mindful about what foreign governments think and say in public about Chinese human rights. Actually, speaking out in public, covered by the media, is likely to turn the Chinese off and likely to have a negative effect on human rights. Criticism in private is something quite different, and that I think most major governments understand and in fact do. On the Tibet-China question, Tibet and China throughout history have been going back and forth uh, 
with different parts of the country controlling the rest of the country. I mean, there was a famous Tibetan king, Songsten Gampo, back in the 6th century, 7th century, 600 and something rather, that married uh, Princess Wang Chen, Tang Dynasty princess. Tang Dynasty princess. Um, the, Chinese, the Chinese attitude towards Tibet has hardened in recent years. Back about 15 years ago, uh, the Dalai Lama's brother was in dialogue with the top leadership, I mean not the top leaders, but top leadership in Beijing, to try and work out a rapprochement. The Dalai Lama has said on numerous occasions, he's consistent, he's not looking for an independent Tibet. He's looking for um, religious freedom and autonomy. It's sensitive right at this moment, things that none of us like, including the Chinese, are happening. China tries to exercise restraint because it knows that once it gets to the outside world, there's going to be a lot of bad press, and it doesn't want to use hard tactics. Um, as far as the um, blind barefoot lawyer, uh, Chen Guangcheng, um, he's a very interesting character. He's known to the outside world more than he is internally in China. In fact, in preparing for this talk, when I talked to several people in China, they'd never heard of him. Uh, but we all know about him outside. Um, the latest news is yesterday the Chinese government agreed that he would get a passport within 15 days and that the U.S. had previously said they'll grant him a visa. He's not looking for political asylum. He, in fact, he didn't want to go outside China in the first place. And your question prompts um, something that I wanted to include in my talk, but for lack of time didn't. And that deals with what's the future for China in terms of a political system. Since, unlike the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism, China's been releasing it slowly for 30, 40, 50 years when they recognize that communism is too expensive as an economic model. Can't afford it. Can't afford to be equal. Got to pay all these pensions, all this health care, all this education. We'd have to tax people. Um, it was looking, and is still looking, for a, a political and social system to replace communism. We have a sort of a vacuum at the moment with people winging it. The Communist Party is apoplectic 
about major demonstrations and that it would have to call in the troops in order to quell a riot. There are demonstrations going on in China every day and have been for the last 15, 20 years. They continue to go along as we speak. The troops are not called in. That's not to say that the police or the troops uh, are not, uh, don't do what they're trained to do if they are called in, and, and the government does not want to do that. But how do you keep 1.4 billion people, 1.34 as it is now, under control? Because if there is a major demonstration nationwide, the only thing they can do is to call in the troops, which they don't want to do. So at a dinner, it wasn't around the kitchen table, it was around a banquet table, and the person sitting next to me is a classmate of my wife, deputy director of the Marxist Institute of Policy Governance. And he said to me that he'd been charged by the top leadership to come up with a series of options as to what kind of governance system, political system, should we have? And he asked me what I thought about Canada. And I was able to say, I don't know, I'm a new Canadian, I haven't been there long enough, but from what I see about it, I'm not sure that that would work. Of late, what young people, young educated people in China are saying, and now that includes... Cheng Wang Cheng is hey you know officials are breaking the law when he complained that there were forced abortions in his village um, nobody took any notice of him so he appealed to the premier to enforce the law and I think that more and more leaders are listening to people. In this particular case, I mean, as Gorbachev's visit to China, which I tried to tell you about in my, my talk, happened, uh, going, uh, uh, Cheng Wang Cheng uh, uh, popped up, well, just before Hillary Clinton arrived. So he has not asked for political asylum. He has said he wants to go back to China. And I think more and more people who want to hold their government to account, really to, to um, just implement the laws as they exist. Now, that's not to say that China won't continue to open up. It will. Others that I've spoken to um, say, well, you know, multi-party system is what we need. So if the guys in power screw up, we can throw them out. But there are those two strains that I will leave you with. Thank you. Okay, be be before, I, my own? before I take the next question, I want to remind you there's a, a mic over here and lots of thoughtful people out there, so I hope uh, we'll see some people moving to the mic uh, uh, to ask your question after Knut here. Knut. Does that mean I don't have to announce my name? No, <laughs> we don't know your last Knut name. Knut Peterson, date of birth. Yeah. Trevor, <laughs> thanks very much for your 
relatively short uh, noticed presentation. Trevor, I just wonder if uh, the Taiwan-China situation, is that a hot-button issue in China? It probably more so internationally, but when I spoke to speak uh, spoke to people in China, it, they didn't even it wasn't an issue with them. Is it an issue internally? Yes, it's not a hot button issue right at this very moment, but um, sort of like uh, it's a bit like the Quebec issue. You know, um, China. Well, as it was, I mean, you know, you don't have to go back. Um, over a thousand years as you do with Tibet to know that Taiwan has always been an integral part of China. I think the approach of the Chinese is relaxed in that hey, you know, we'll just get rich, which is what Deng Xiaoping opened up uh, <clears throat> and encouraged China to do. Taiwan will fall into place without any bullets being fired or guns being fired or people being killed. Uh, China follows Taiwan politics very carefully. At present, the um, government in Taiwan is, wants a rapprochement with Beijing and Beijing wants the same thing. It doesn't want complications of parts of the country trying to break away. So it's not a hot-button issue, but it's always, always there. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you, Trevor, for uh, condensing a, a big story into a very small space. Um, I don't know whether you were bragging or complaining when you talked about the long nose. <laughs> but... Uh, but uh, it depends when on I go the back woman. To, into history, Trevor, uh, the uh, admiral, the first admiral, Chinese admiral who sailed into the Mediterranean, um, talked about uh, the the long-nosed uh, barbarians that he met in that part of the world, <laughs> and and I think that 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 condition still persists. Uh, in any case. Um, when you referred to the Chinese being very sensitive to being criticized by outside people, I don't think that that's just the Chinese people who are that way. I noticed the same thing happened the other day when uh, somebody from the United Nations said something about Canada. <laughs> I'm very glad you picked that up. I, I was... Uh, that was quite something watching it yesterday. Oh, my goodness, you know, not only did I work for the UN, I work for UN World Food Program. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh, Trevor, in, in your experience, uh, do you see the uh, Chinese people as having the, the will and, the, and the, whatever it takes to uh, become the, great nation, the greatest nation in this world? Yes, is the short answer, but it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, China, Zhongguo, means the Middle Kingdom in English. Uh, of course, India thinks it's the center of the world too. Um, but I think, uh, I mean, the strategy has been not just for individual people to get rich, but for the country to get rich too. Uh, that has been progressing. 
it's by no means immune to um, the world economic downturn. We're in an interconnected world now, and whatever we do, wherever, is going to affect another part of the country. So, um, yes, I think China will progress, um, but I think it's going to just let it happen um, automatically as um, it gets continues to accumulate wealth. Mary Shillington, uh, Trevor, thanks for your presentation and also for the interesting discussion at our table. Uh, you talked about the small percentage of arable land in China, and at our table you were talking about how with development, farmers were being encouraged to sell their plots of their land and for development and the uh, apartments and uh, ghost, uh, the, store, uh, the uh, villages or towns that were being established in our ghost towns and so on. So my concern would be what's happening with, with that land that is now being taken, perhaps out of, out of food production, uh, where's that going and, and what do you see as the solution? Because if they're trying to feed so many people, uh, they can't give up arable land. So what's, what do you see as uh, the problems and the solutions there? Well, it's a major problem. And it's not that... Uh, I mean, the land is being acquired. The farmer really doesn't have much choice. Some farmers are holding out. It's like sticking a an oil well on your land in Alberta. You know, the government can do it, but some fight it and others don't. Most don't. Um, and they don't fight it because actually the profit that they got from farming their small plots, national average 1.6 acres, didn't, get, didn't amount to very much more, if any more, than the $50 a month that they now get. But nationally, of course, you take farmland out of production. Um, that does impact on the food situation. However, in order to achieve the yields uh, on grain and other food crops, China, as I mentioned, applies astronomical amounts of nitrogen fertilizer and in the process, poisons the waterways. These are all factors that the Chinese government understand much better than everybody else. So what they have done is they've resorted to importing grain and food because it's cheaper right, than poisoning their own land. Now, that's the rough answer to your question. There are all sorts of side issues involved, but that's the rationale. Now, how long can that go on? And that's the $64 question. I mean, it's something that top administrators in government are seized with the whole time. And some of it's, you know, can we manage to get from one year to the next? So... It's not, you know, China is relaxed that it's going ahead, everything will fall into place. By no means. Yes, sir. My name is Yuli Yao. I still want to bring the, my uh, topic back to the Tibetan issue. Uh, I have a feeling that the Tibetan issue is not the Tibetan itself problem. 
it is a problem for the whole country. So as we see, they say free Tibetan. I'm thinking it should be free China, the whole people, totally. So I want to bring this question to you to hear what you think on this point. Is that Tibetan issue or is it totally China, the whole country issue on controlling its people by the, by the top people? Thanks. Okay, thanks very much for your question. Um, what I think about it is this, that China is a very diverse country. There are 56 nationalities in China, 55 minority nationalities, and Han Chinese. All parts of China are different. They have different issues, and, that's, and, and they're seized by those issues in their localities. Um, as China was opening up to the world, it had to figure out what to do with Hong Kong. And the formula that it came up with was one China, two systems. Free market system in Hong Kong and communist system in mainland China. Um, now, that's been going on and I don't think you've seen China, uh, you don't, I don't think you've seen Beijing interfering in the day-to-day -day life of Taiwan or the Taiwanese. So I think eventually what's going to happen, when it becomes more attractive in mainland China uh, to ordinary people, and that by that I mean that they all have houses, they all have cars, they can all buy enough food, health care is fine, and mainland China becomes, you get a better deal over there. Taiwan will rejoin, and, uh, and Hong Kong will be assimilated. So I'm not in favor of three Chinas. I'm in favor of one China, but I think China's taking a relaxed position and waiting for it to happen. Okay, last call for questions here. Thank you, Trevor. My name is Tad Mitsui. You enlightened me a great deal. First time I went to China, it was still under Mao Zedong in power. My question has to do with culture and religion. When I first went, I was told that uh, Confucius was the main cause of backwardness of China. The churches were warehouses, they were closed, and other religions are termed as superstition. Now I'm hearing from all kinds of places that Confucianism has been revised, churches have opened, could you enlighten us about the situation of culture and religion in the new China? Thank you. Yes, thank you for that question. Very important. Um, I, I, I mentioned when I spoke before lunch that 50 years of communism didn't destroy the Chinese god, which in my opinion is money. Um... I also mentioned in reply to a question that there is an uneasy vacuum at the moment with the 
communism taking a back seat to the free market. And China looking for a looking to fill that vacuum, but looking for a system of governance um, and looking towards the, looking at the West and other parts of Asia on, on, for that. Um, progressively, well, let's start off when I was in China in the 80s, and progressively since I go back, more and more people are going to temples. Now, some of these are Buddhist temples. In fact, most of them are Buddhist temples. Some Confucian temples, some Christian churches. Um, when you actually, I mean, that would tend to indicate, oh my God, there's a resurgence of religion. Actually, when you look at what the people are doing inside the temples, is they're praying that they get that job. They're praying that that financial deal works out. And the bottom line is money. They're trying to sort of improve their lot. Now you could say that all religion is about improving one's lot. But that's a, that's a different discussion. The Chinese government does not have a consistent policy on this. It would be wrong and simplistic to say, oh, well, they're much more relaxed about religion. They're not. And a uh, previous question about um, uh, Cheng Wang Cheng, when he was able to get in on his cell phone into the U.S. congressional hearing in Washington about his particular predicament, it was actually a well-known Chinese Christian pastor who held the phone. So when those kind of things happen, it sends signals to the Politburo, oh my God, these people are trying to embarrass us, you know. So it's being taught, let's say, the resurgence of people going to buildings which are either temples or churches is growing, but I question their motivation. Okay, I think we have one more question and one more uh, answer. This one won't take long. Uh, I'm Charlie Luca. I was wondering, in the view of the potential shortage of food eventually, do you suppose that food might be manufactured? That is, for example, the nutrients manufactured and added to some uh, easily grown bulk. Uh, okay. Um, not specifically for China, but as a nutritional supplement or as just food for people suffering from uh, acute, severe, moderate, and mild malnutrition, that is in fact what's been done for the last five, six, seven years. There are a number of products, mainly using um, peanut as a supplement to grain in order to pump calories into kids that are malnourished. Um, fortification of biscuits is taking place. Um, if you ask... My wife, along with the other million or so Chinese, if she hasn't had, or I should say, south of the Yangtze River, which sort of runs uh, east-west and divides the country in two, north-south, 
Uh, if you haven't had a bowl of rice, you haven't had a meal, you haven't eaten. And that's not just true in China, it's true in India and many other countries. So I don't think we're there yet as far as adding supplements to foods as solving the food problem, but we are certainly, it is to the forefront of using it with children suffering from malnutrition. Good question. Um, so uh, next week is uh, electrical deregulation and, uh, and John Davies. Let's thank our speaker, uh, Trevor Page.